Today we're covering the tiny Mediterranean island of Elba when it was briefly ruled by perhaps the most famous Frenchman in history. Uh, Gérard Depardieu? No. Antoine de Gordon? Joey Baton? As I said yesterday, I make one tackle and all everybody speaks about is this tackle nobody speaks about. Uh... Nope, it's Napoleon Bonaparte. Never heard of him. This is the story of what happens when you run a country but lose a major war and then what happens to you because, well, it's the 19th century. Ah, so you're put on trial for war crimes, you're imprisoned, you're executed or what? No, they just give you another country to run. It's the gentlemanly thing to do. Welcome to the Principality of Elba and welcome to Series 4 of... Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist anymore What was the Principality of Elba? It was the personal Principality of Napoleon Bonaparte with his 12,000 citizens on the 18-mile-long island of Elba in the Mediterranean. It was given to Napoleon Bonaparte as the runner-up prize for losing the Battle of Paris in 1814 at the end of the First Napoleonic War. That's a pretty great runner-up prize, since these days you probably get a key ring. But why on earth did Napoleon Bonaparte get his own country? Yeah, this is a weird one. Um, So the restored Bourbon monarchy in France would have liked a much harsher punishment for old Boney, preferably exiled to a much further away place like St Helena in the Atlantic, where he eventually ended his days. But not execution. And not execution. See, while there was no love for Bonaparte, it was felt by the European powers that promoting the murder of a head of state was definitely out. Old regicide already had a pretty bad rap thanks to the recent French Revolution. And if European monarchs started saying that killing an emperor or king was okay, it might encourage revolutionaries in their own countries to oil up the old guillotines and start splitting some divinely ordained heads from their respective body politique. Instead, Napoleon was sent to Elba with a personal guard of between 400 to 600 men, some of his fave generals and a healthy pension of 2 million francs a year from the French government. It was a pretty competitive retirement package. Almost as good as the boomers get. Yeah, right. Yeah. Although you have just bought a very expensive house in the Greenbelt. Subject to contract, Phil. He lived in a palace, held bulls, did donuts and a fancy coach and horses and enjoyed all the formalities, pomp and ceremony of a 19th century monarch. A guard of honour would fire a cannon every time the emperor did a successful number two. Probably. He played cards with the local elite, had a horse race, a public dance and fireworks. It was like a really cushy house arrest. But isn't Elba really close to France and Italy? And wouldn't having a well-funded, quite popular emperor so close seem like a bad idea? Uh, Yeah, the idea of such a lenient punishment was the brainchild of the Russian Tsar Alexander, who knew that Napoleon needed to have a slap on the wrist. But the Tsar also figured that having to keep half an eye on the former French emperor would keep Western powers distracted leaving Russia to get busy dominating Eastern Europe. Ah, Russia. Destabilising the West so they could dominate Eastern Europe. Now, where have I seen that? 
Yet there are no new ideas, just old ideas and new people taking credit for them. These days we call that marketing. So Napoleon was totally chuffed about being the Emperor of Elba, or what? Yeah, well not initially. In fact, he tried to poison himself. Bonaparte had actually carried a vial of poison around his neck as a kind of plan Q for years. So he summoned his closest advisers to bid them farewell, took the poison and then vomited a lot. We don't know why the poison didn't do the job, but one plausible theory is that Boney N had been carrying it around for so long that it lost its potency. Uh, you know, mon emperor, you, you really should not take that poison. The sell-by date on the bottle says 3rd April 1811. You could get really sick. Ah, no one takes any notice of sell-by dates. They're just for legal reasons. It'll be fine. You know, they make them up from the mainstream media trying to control us all. Excusez-moi. And after failing to kill himself, he had a decent night's sleep and felt much better about things in the morning. Having cheated death, sort of, he then enthusiastically threw himself into the job of being Emperor of Elba. But that was a difficult thing to do because Elba was very much a backward place and Nappy took the job of dragging it kicking and screaming into the 19th century. Despite complaints from his own staff that it wasn't very emperor-like of him, Napoleon was determined to take every detail in hand and sort it out himself. Classic micromanager. A surviving report recounts a time when Napoleon disagreed with his closest general Bertrand on the always controversial issue of how many bread rolls should be fed to the hunting dogs. Bertrand presented a written report to Napoleon requesting one bread roll per dog. Napoleon initialed the request in the margin of the document but changed the bread to bran bread and worked out how the imperial budget would pay for it. And while on a roll, he set out a large programme of public works, building roads and bridges, draining marshes, boosting agriculture and developing mines, as well as overhauling the island schools and its entire legal system. He provided towns with water to combat Elba's brutal summer droughts, created a fire service and provided subsidised corn to the masses to keep them well fed and pliant. He'd done the same cheap bread trick while ruling France and it worked for every leader since Julius Caesar. Because... Everybody wants to be the Roman Empire! Napoleon also tried to set up sculpture workshops and an art school. He had the latrines in Port Ferraio rebuilt because he <coughs> thought they Ed, were... Ed, Ed, Portoferio, it's Italian. No, 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 Portferio, and also two beers, mate, chop, chop. Anyway, wherever, however you call it, he had the latrines rebuilt because he thought they were very smelly. And when a Frenchman is complaining that toilets smell, God, you know they're bad. <laughs> Toilet banter, the acceptable face of xenophobia. Zeno what? Did the Principality of Elba have a flag? Yep, you've got to have a flag, and this one was designed by the Emperor himself. It consisted of a white background with a red stripe, inspired by the Grand Ducal Merchant flag, to which he added three golden bees. This flag was even worn by his French veterans. 
and Napoleon certainly had an eye for design, so much so that he set about giving his opinions on what colour the drape should be in the imperial palaces. Who was with Napoleon on the island? As well as his military advisors, soldiers and new subjects, he was also joined by his mother and sister, who occupied lavish mansions. Like all narcissists, Napoleon was very close to his mother, Madame Mare. Apparently, during the night, she often went to the Palazzina de Molini, where he lived, to make sure her son had gone to bed, tiptoeing into his bedroom to tuck him in and caress him. Mimi, why won't they let me take over Europe? Hush, my little soldier. Those diplomats and foreign ministers are just very naughty boys. And he seemed very close with his sister Paulette. During one ball, Napoleon was wearing white trousers and a white waistcoat, black tails with chantilly lace and a black cocked hat. Hinting he'd put on weight, Paulette apparently negged him with... This evening you are more of a penguin than ever. To which Napoleon suavely replied... Mamie, Paulette called me a penguin. Despite the family reunion, his wife, the Duchess Marie Louise, stayed away, for some reason preferring European palaces to a dusty island, but he was also visited by his Polish mistress, a countess. He also romantically pursued a local girl, Swara. According to a contemporary, he spent many happy hours eating cherries with her. Oh, Napoleon, you dirty old dog. What kind of government did Elba have? Not only was it an autocracy under Napoleon, but it was also in fact considered his personal property. But autocrats also need admin. A three-page written constitution divided the running of the island into five sub-departments. The civil administration was funded by land taxation. The communes were funded by various local taxes. The emperor's domains were solely for Napoleon and his supporters, i.e. the palaces and their lands, the mines, salt flats, fisheries and the island of Pianosa, and whatever deck chair Napoleon bagsed on any given day at the beach. Then the emperor's household and the army were financed by profits from his domains, which weren't very much, and from his private piggy bank. These sub-departments were run by his favourite officers, including General Bertrand and General Drouot. Or Drouot. Bit of a come-down, actually. Actually, yes, the once mighty General Bertrand, governor of the Illyrian provinces, now had been downgraded to other duties, including making sure the gardens were tidy, the servants wore the right kind of uniforms, and the furniture was in a good condition. And the punishment of Bertrand didn't stop there. Clearly, at a loose end, the Emperor started playing practical jokes on his hapless general. One example was how he sneaked a fish into Bertrand's pocket and then asked him for a napkin. <laughs> and get this, when Bertrand hmm. puts his hand into the pocket, instead of finding a napkin, you'll never guess what he found. Ugh, fish! <laughs> Genius. Genius. Fish! Today's fish is trout a la creme. Enjoy your meal. A sovereign council was also set up, consisting of 12 members, including four French military men and other important Elbans. But since the Principality of Elba lasted 300 days, it didn't get round to doing all that much. And what about the Elban military? 
Well, all told, the military, both army and navy, ended up adding up to about a thousand, maybe more. The army was commanded by one General Cambron, and it had a staff headquarters, the Grenadier Battalion de l'Île d'Elbe, a free battalion of about 300 men, the Chasseur Corset, a military band, and a group of local gendarmes. And its crowning glory, throw in 566 loyal troops of the elite Garde Imperiale, both infantry and cavalry, coming from France, who represented by far the biggest expense on the island. Now, the Navy was quite another story. It consisted of one very well-armed French ship called the Inconstant, with six officers and 60 crew. But there were also a few dinghies to make the Navy look a bit more formidable. But it wasn't all plain sailing. (laughs) Navy Commander Talliard nearly lost the flagship during a bit of a breeze and was replaced on charges of cowardice by Lieutenant J. Chateaud, the naval man who would eventually ferry Napoleon back to France from Elba in 1815. And when these soldiers weren't soldiering, they appeared in plays with accompanying music provided by the military band, all put on for the emperor's amusement in a converted church. Now, the problem with having a 1,000-strong military, imperial palaces with all the fittings, a household staff, all on a dirt-poor island of only 12,000 very reluctant taxpayers, meant that it got pretty expensive just to run the show. Ma chère mademoiselle, it is with modest pride and some concern about portion control that we welcome you to Napoleon's palace. And now we invite you to lower your expectations and let us pull up a chair as the dining room proudly presents your complimentary buffet. Bring your own booze. Be our guest. Be our guest. Our budget to the test. Bring your own fork and plate, sherry, and we'll provide the rest. Copper soup, pot noodle, round here we're frugal. Still hungry is a pop tart, and our table comes from Kmart. Watch your manners, mind your elbows. After all, this this is Elba, and the dinner here is always 15th best. Go on, unfold your menu. Take a jacket potato. Be our guest. We oui, be our guest. Be our guest. Yeah, finances were stretched. In fact, when Napoleon sent out his tax collectors to gather revenues from the island, the populace often refused to pay. The locals actually owed tax in arrears, but they claimed that since they had a change of government, these taxes no longer counted. The situation got so bad that some Elbans actually contacted British agents and and told them to overthrow their emperor. Pretty soon it became apparent that this setup was so expensive that Napoleon could not afford to run his island empire. But what about those two million francs? Yeah, while the pension had been agreed, it had only really been agreed in theory. See, the French government had no actual intention of paying up. Oh yeah, promising loads of money and not paying up. (laughs) Where have we seen that? Hello 2016. All right, Phil, I think it's very easy to uh, criticise the Conservative government, but they've actually got uh, lots of different stamp duty holidays and other things that really help people get on the uh, property ladder. What, if they want a nice big fat house in the Greenbelt? 
This interview's over. Anyway, for one thing, they didn't see why they should be funding Napoleon's toy empire. The restored Louis XVIII suggested that to save money, Bonaparte should be stuck on a more remote island where he wouldn't require palaces and household staff and all that good stuff. And for another thing, it's doubtful that a cash-strapped France could really afford the annual payout, even if it wanted to pay, which it didn't. France was in major economic turmoil after a ruinous war and hefty reparations. Not only was it penniless, but there was also major social unrest. And while the rest of Europe thought the restored monarchy was definitely a great idea, a lot of the French people didn't agree, particularly as that same monarchy had agreed to the French Empire returning to its old borders, thus stripping the French people of the national glory they'd grown accustomed to. Unemployment in France was also rife. Returning soldiers of Napoleon's war of conquest found themselves in penury and unemployable, and everybody looked back with wine goggles to the golden days of cheap bread and French pride under their great emperor. And when news of this reached the ears of Napoleon, he probably thought, Bugger Elber, and returned to France on the Elbon Navy's flagship. And with Napoleon fleeing the island on April the 28th, 1814, so ended the Principality of Elba. Could Napoleon have stayed on Elba? Yes and no. The chief expenses of his rule were, one, his courtly practices, and two, his outside military. But in the first place, Napoleon, even as Emperor of France, obsessed about his legitimacy. Yes, he made sure to hold a popular vote every time he gave himself a promotion, from consul to consul for life to emperor, but he also envied the legitimacy of the old monarchs of Europe. Apparently, Napoleon would constantly compare himself to glorious emperors of the past who did a bit of European expansion in their own right, like Julius Caesar and Charlemagne. Not only do we see Napoleon in artworks in Roman garb, but accounts of Austrian ambassador and later Chancellor Metternich seem to back this up. His heroes were Alexander, Caesar, and above all, Charlemagne. He was strangely obsessed with the pretension that he was de facto and de jour the latter's successor. I have seen him in many times lose himself in interminable discussions with me, supporting this strange paradox with some of the feeblest arguments. And actually, I'm just like uh, Charlemagne because I have the same hair color and I'm thinking of growing a beard just like him. And did you know um, that Napoleon Bonaparte is actually an anagram of Charlemagne? As long as you replace some of the letters with some of the letters. Uh, Fate, who's that over there? Oh, I, I think it's, uh, it's Admiral Lord Nelson. I'll go and say hello. No, monsieur, you must be mistaken. He has been dead for years. Hassi, Hassi, yeah, okay. Hassi! So Napoleon's whole insistence on really, really expensive courtly ceremony, whether in Paris or Elba, was about giving his government the ancient character which it lacked. And that wasn't cheap. And that elite military, sure, it gave his tours of Elba the right level of pomp and circumstance, but without allies, save for the capricious Tsar, it wasn't total paranoia that Emperor Napoleon's island would need defending. Napoleon later said, uh, My existence on Elba was still very enviable, very pleasant. I was soon going to create there a new sort of sovereignty. 
I would have uh, offered the world a spectacle never before seen. People might object, it is true, that the Allies would have taken my island away from me, and I agree that this circumstance isn't my return. But if France had been well governed, if the French had been content, my influence would have been at an end. I was history, and no one in Vienna would have dreamed of moving me on. So there's nothing he could have done about it, is basically what he's saying there. And and while we could argue about whether Napoleon wanted to stay and rule 12,000 people when he'd given up an empire of 70 million subjects, there was another reason why Napoleon's time on Elba was doomed. Doomed! Through his agents, Bonaparte learned that the British, who were never super keen on the Tsar's plan to make him a distraction to Western powers wanted to move him further away from France to St Helena, the island in the South Atlantic where he would end up anyway. So, gathering up his small army and his navy, disguised as British ships, he slipped away and made a break for France, where he was at first hailed as a returning hero and then lost the Battle of Waterloo a hundred days later. did Albans feel about having Napoleon as emperor? Now that's kind of interesting because they actually didn't hear about it until the day before Bonaparte rocked up. See, Elba had been in lockdown because the plague was raging around the rest of Europe. So Albans had had no news for quite a while. Pandemic? Russian invasion? Don't do that. And actually, when he did turn up, they were quite pleased with the news. Napoleon Bonaparte? Our Emperor? Well, this will put Elba on the map and no mistake. Certainly, when I emigrated here from Plymouth, everyone said to me, Silas, you're making a mistake. Don't matter whether you open that coffee shop with the experimental milky foam toppings or not, you'll never gentrify Elba. But look at us now. Any day now, we can expect boatloads of courtly hipsters who ironically support Napoleon Bonaparte. I'm turning my field into the planting of avocados. People of Elber, I bring you rose, drinking water, grand buildings, a shiny new toilet, and even a school of sketching bound to produce the next Banksy. And best of all, taxes! In fact, even today, Napoleon is remembered fondly on Elba. That flag designed by Napoleon, still in use. And Napoleon Merch does really well. There are two museums dedicated to him in his former residences, and every year they have a parade to mark the anniversary of his death on May the 5th, 1821. During these festivities, they dress a short man in a big hat and parade him around. Ah, come on, guys, not again. Look, I have more to offer to the world than just being a short guy in a stupid hat. So the problem with the Principality of Elba as a country was twofold. One. Its existence had to be funded by external revenue. And when that failed to materialise, it was an unsustainable project. Arguably, Napoleon could have downgraded from a palace, cancelled the extensive public works projects and continued as a pauper king. But that wasn't really Napoleon Bonaparte. There's a reason it's called a Napoleon complex. Two. As much as the Treaty of Fontainebleau set up a country for Napoleon to rule over, it was really, really more just a very fancy form of exile. 
Certainly Napoleon could play at government, set himself up a council, appoint ministers of this and that, and have all the official receptions he wanted. But he also couldn't have a foreign policy, he couldn't create treaties or develop relationships, he wasn't even allowed a foreign minister. The Principality of Elba was as much an independent country as an ocean cruise. Yes, it looked like a proper little nation out on the sea and had all the bells and whistles of luxury, but in reality it was nothing more than a very expensive and ultimately unsustainable prison. And in case you can't tell, I'm not a fan of cruises. So, what, so, so you'd never go on a cruise, Ed? Huh, never, mate. Although, that said, my girlfriend has found some really rather good offers, and you get a discount if you already own quite an expensive house. Elba, I need somebody, Elba, not just anybody, Elba, you know I need Paris, not Elba. When, when I was younger, so I was youngest and today, I conquered you, I conquered you, and just threw it all away. But now that empire's gone, empire's I'm not gone. so set for sure. Not set for sure. I'm gonna build some shiny boats, but now I'm getting bored. Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do appreciate the elephant crown. But my tax increase is getting frowned. Won't you please, please help me? Now, and now my life my has life changed has in changed. so many ways My independence, my independence seems seem to vanish in the A's But every now and then I want, I want to, conquer France. to conquer France I've eaten all the cherries, done all the fish paste prongs Help me if you can, I'm feeling blue Ever since defeat and then Fontainebleau I can't afford the reforms I wanna do Won't you please, please help me Help me, help me, we So on the next episode of Countries That Don't Exist Anymore we are tapping up an expert We'll be talking to the presenter of the Age of Napoleon podcast Everett Rummage who will be telling us, well hopefully giving us more insight into the character of Napoleon and really the idea of could a man like Napoleon ever really have been happy on an island like Elba? So that would be great Yep, join us then Don't forget to go to our website ctdea pod.com oh i've nearly forgotten it Ed. it's been a while facebook slash ctdea pod twitter ctdea pod and we've got loads of interesting countries that don't exist anymore coming up including the mughal empire and ruthenia yeah one lasted for over 300 years and the other lasted for about 15 minutes so uh yeah a wide expanse of time differences there that's the first country that's lasted less time than a single episode of this podcast. Don't worry, I'll see if I can beat that record. So join us next time on... Countries that don't exist anymore They used to exist but not anymore Now you know what this podcast is for It's countries that don't exist Real.